Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Quorum Deo Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today we're talking about what if fake news isn't the problem? What if? Well, what is the problem? Hey, hey, first of all, thanks Brian for the Rice Krispie Treats. Yeah, They're that's delicious. not a problem. Those Snacks are good. Today. Also, uh, Chris Hummelman joining us via technology today from afar. Yeah, Dusty just gave me so much uh, hardship on the last uh, podcast that I thought, hey, next time I'm gone on vacation, I'll just I'll just have you guys FaceTime me in. So that's, yeah. that's what this is about, right? That's wow. me. That's you, me just I will payback. say, it, sadly, you sound like every bad podcast I've listened to where it's like, oh, this person's <laughs> talking through a, you know, FaceTime or something. But it's okay. We can, yes. The beauty is we can still hear you. You just, you just don't sound quite as live and real. Your voice is mediated through layers of technology. It's all right. People don't care. As long as we get the Hemi, we're fine. That's right. It's the brain power that matters more than the, the, the timber of your voice. I'm looking at Chris on a screen, and he's just, just staring at me. He's saying no words. He's just staring into the it's computer so screen. It's so awkward. It's so awkward. This yeah. is a terrible way to do a podcast. Awkward. Yes. Hey, before we get into this week's uh, topic, I want to circle back from a couple of weeks ago. We did a the podcast on the wrong kind of maid. What was that episode number, Bethany? Uh, 409. 409, the wrong kind of maid. We talked about Canada's medical assistance in dying. And I said, hey, yeah, this is coming to uh, you in your life before long. Then I read an article from the January 28th episode or issue of World Magazine. Let me read you what this article says. Mark Lacey, a 66-year-old New Mexico doctor and a Christian, finds himself threatened with the loss of his license for refusing to comply with the state's physician-assisted suicide law. A lawsuit filed in December by Lacey and the Christian Medical and Dental Association targets a 2021 New Mexico law that not only decriminalizes physician-assisted suicide, but requires non-participating doctors to promote the practice by telling terminally ill patients that suicide is an option and referring them to doctors willing to help them carry it out. The uh, article goes on to say that to date, 10 states and the District of Columbia have legalized physician-assisted suicide. I did not know that when we recorded that podcast. And I learned that. Did not know that either. I was talking wow. as though like maybe in the future this is coming to the United States of America. Actually, apparently 10 it's states already, here. already do this. And there's already a lawsuit on the books in New Mexico because New Mexico is already just like Canada. So I just wanted to say when we talk about topics on the Wednesday conversation, they are live. They are real happening right around you. And unfortunately, this is coming faster than you think. So I was just intrigued that right after we released that episode... I came across that article and realized, oh, wow, this is a real thing happening right around us. All right, so fake news. It's a problem, right? Yes. I mean, everybody says it's a problem. Yes. Everybody says it's all about the fake news. A listener, this is why I like our listeners, because our listeners are such good listeners that they just feed us articles, topics, ideas. They say, hey, here's a thing you should talk about. I ran into a Wednesday conversation listener recently in person. He was like, he lives in South Dakota. He said, oh, hey, I got an article I think you guys should talk about. 
And he pulled up his phone and emailed it to me right there yeah. while we were standing there. The great thing about this article is it's like a copy of a copy of a copy. Yeah, it's, I mean, I don't know. We're, yeah, it's, it's clearly like a scan of a scan. It is from uh, the New Atlantis, spring 2022. And it looks like it's reprinted in current December 2022. So this is an article from last year. It is from Andrea Saltelli, who is uh, at the University of Bergen in Norway. And Daniel Sarowitz, who is the Emeritus Professor of Science and Society at Arizona State University. And what this article does is it takes an alternative position on what's actually happening in the world of information. And I thought it was interesting because I think, I, I think as Christians, obviously part of our job in the world is to think biblically and to think critically. And I like any time an article takes um, a conversation we're having in our culture that seems like it only has two perspectives and, and then sort of steps back from it and goes, actually, this is part of a bigger question that we're not asking. And that's kind of what this article does. And so I think it's an interesting, it makes some interesting points that I think are helpful for Christians who care about truth to think about in the modern world. And so I want to sort of just walk through the case, this article, it's only a three page article, um, Bethany, can we post this in the show notes since it's a PDF or yeah, is it? I think so. Yeah. Bethany will put it out there on the interwebs I'll for you somewhere. Um, so you can read it. Uh, let me read the opening paragraph or the opening couple of paragraphs because they just tee up uh, the case these authors want to make. And remember, these are two professors who work primarily in uh, science and society. Okay. So these are people who are thinking about science and its connection to culture and how we communicate about scientific topics. Here's how the article begins. We are suffering through a pandemic of lies, or so we hear from leading voices in media, politics, and academia. Our culture is infected by a disease that has many names, fake news, post-truth, misinformation, disinformation, anti-science. The affliction, we are told, is a perversion of the proper role of knowledge in a healthy information society. What is to be done? To restore truth, we need strategies to get the facts straight. For example, we need better science communication. We need independent fact-checking and a relentless commitment to exposing and countering falsehoods. And it goes on to list some of the suggestions people have made. Uh, for instance, New York Times recently suggested that uh, President Biden should appoint a reality czar. That sounds a little scary to me. I don't czar think I want a reality czar. <laughs> Uh, the article goes on to say in the third paragraph, such efforts reflect the view that untruth is a plague on our information society, one that can and must be cured. If we pay enough responsible, objective attention to distinguishing what is true from what is not, and thus excise misinformation from the body politic, people can be sa kept safe from falsehood. Put another way, it is an implicitly Edenic belief in the original purity of the information society, a state we have lapsed from but can yet return to by the grace of fact checkers. I think that's a really provocative statement because I think the, the, they're just trying to be good writers, but I think they're actually saying right there, there's a, there's, a, there's a redemptive narrative being assumed here, which is the original state of innocence was the purity of the information society. We've fallen from that state of grace. And now we need the grace of fact checkers to take us back to that Eden. Your thoughts, Chris? Yeah, which is, as they point out, like completely an enlightenment sort of myth, right? That yes. There's this pure sort of truth that 
that we have and we need to uphold and that um, we're constantly battling that fall from grace. So it, it very much, that idea very much is rooted in an enlightenment rationalist uh, perspective. All right, let me read the next sentence. Here's where they assert their point of view. They say, we beg to differ. Fake news is not a perversion of the information society, but a logical outgrowth of it. A symptom of the decades-long devolution of the traditional authority for governing knowledge and communicating information. That authority has long been held by a small number of institutions. When that kind of monopoly is no longer possible, truth itself must become contested. So here's the interesting case they're making. They're saying, hey, fake news is not a perversion of the information society. It's actually a logical thing that's going to happen in any society that is an information society when traditional sources of authority start to crumble or when the monopoly on sort of how we get our information starts to go away. So think back to my childhood. You had CBS, ABC, NBC, and then PBS. Once was, a day. Once a day. Yeah, once a day and really four channels that reported the news, right? And if you wanted to get the news, you had to, I mean, you know, there was no internet there. I mean, there probably was, Al Gore had already invented the internet, but we didn't have it yet. So there probably, there probably was the internet, but it was only for nerdy professors. Um, but the point is there was sort of an information economy and a, and a trusted set of sources from which we got our information. Fast forward to now, you've got all kinds of internet sites, all kinds of crazy YouTube videos, all kinds of sources of information. So we are awash in the, the information economy has been democratized, you might say. And these authors are saying, when that happens, of course you're going to get lots and lots of different sources of information. And so fake news is not actually a problem or a devolution. It's just a natural outgrowth of what happens in a society um, when traditional sources of authority start to crumble. Chris, you're looking off into the middle distance. No, this is this actually gets at something that attention that I've I've kind of had in my head with this issue for a while is the the whole tension between controlling information and sort of the uh, the negative consequences of that, and then uh, kind of opening it up in a more democratic way, and the challenges of that. And so you you both sides you're going to have issues and challenges here, and um, I think I mean as they, again they point out. This has happened before, um, but in the past, even, you know, sort of the, the degree to which information was spread and this, the, the rate uh, that it was spread, um, while it seemed like radical at the time compared to today, seems very slow and quaint. Uh, but so, so there, I think there's some unique issues that we have based on the speed of which information and the amount of information. I think you're exactly right. Yeah. Let's come so, back. So a, let's, co tension, yeah. let's come back to that tension you're raising because I think that's that's the interesting thing to talk about. But first, I want to have them take us through the history. They said there's three ways we got here. First was the rise of mass communication, radio, television, you know, new printing processes, and basically mass marketing advertising. So they basically say like, hey, the rise of mass marketing, uh, they say, created the cultural substrate for the so-called post-truth world we live in now. It normalized hyperbole, superlatives, and untestable claims to the rhetoric of everyday commerce. They say what started out as a way to sell new and improved soap uh, amounts today to an, a rhetorical infrastructure of hype. 
you know, everything is awesome and the greatest and the best. And, you know, we're just used to making overstatements. So they're saying the first thing that happened to sort of like challenge the control of the flow of information was just mass communication and mass marketing. Second, and this is interesting, science expanded its role into the domain of public affairs. So they're saying there was a time when science was kind of a, a, you know, it was about science. But during the middle of the 20th century, science started sort of, scientists started speaking more and more about issues of public affairs. Um, And so the boundary between science and politics started to get blurred. And so they say that, you know, society had long been shaped by scientific advances. But basically, in the second half of the 20th century, science started to talk more and more concretely about a range of issues that were sort of like actually still politically contested, right? So think about, um, you know, do particular food additives cause cancer? Um, How should people deal with tobacco? How should we deal with nuclear arms? Um, Science started to sort of make assertions about how we should approach these things. And so what they're saying is, happened in the midst of that is that people started to view scientific communication with a little bit more skepticism because whereas once, you know, if you talk to me about, you know, what science says about the nature of the, uh, you know, the astronomy and the stars and planets, I might take that for granted because you're a scientist. But if you start telling me, here's what science says about how we should approach nuclear energy. Well, now that might feel like a more contested place in our culture where there's not an established consensus yet. So they use this example in the article Questions that may sound straightforward, like, should women in their 40s get regular mammograms? Will genetically modified crops make food more affordable? Do the benefits of decarbonizing our energy production outweigh the costs? These became the focus of never-ending political disputes that science got pulled into. So now you have competing scientific claims being leveraged for competing political agendas. And so science itself sort of becomes a tool of politics or, or, or political communication. And that is a, is a shift that they say sort of opened up or began to democratize a little bit um, how we think about science and communication. With their first technological comment about mass communication, for the first time, I guess for me, I started to see that's actually where trust probably began to crumble yeah. in, in society, which I hadn't really thought of it, thought about it that way. I just thought, Oh, mass communication is mostly good because we're getting more information. Well, do you but remember? That's, that's where the skepticism starts to make trust crumble. We rewatched the Christmas story over Christmas. Do you remember when he gets the decoder ring and he decodes the message? Yeah. It's basically buy more yeah. Ovaltine. He's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's an example of like, oh, you're just trying to market something to me. Now I'm skeptical. And so then if you have that mass communication, then now you import all this scientific data. And yeah. now we just have all of these competing voices. And as historians of science, these article, the, these writers are, are interested in that part of it because they're saying science is more contested now than it needed to be because we've pulled it into the realm of public affairs. Yeah. And then the third, the third phase of history is the internet and social media. And so that's a pretty obvious one to all of us. And it basically says, you know, now we live in an information environment that anybody can say anything and who knows what they're going to say and who knows how we check the facts on everything. And so they say people are now free to decide what information and in which experts they want to believe. 
when everything seems like it can be plausible to someone, the term fake news loses its meaning. They talk about a couple examples here that I think are very pertinent to us. The first is what happened during COVID, right? Where you had, like they say, uh, the COVID lab leak hypothesis was fake news until that news itself became fake, right? Like when, that, when, it fir- we, when you first heard people talking about, hey, maybe COVID came from a lab leak in China, it was instantly like, that's fake news. And then it turns out that's actually what happened. And so that went from being a view that the scientific community was bashing and saying was a conspiracy theory to being a view that actually is verified by the facts themselves. And so when that happens, you have a lot of skepticism and distrust about information because uh, people realize, oh, the experts aren't always telling us the truth. Sometimes the experts are telling us whatever is expedient for us to believe at this moment in time. Now, they ask, when is another time in history that was similar to this? And they point to the introduction of the printing press and say, that's, and what's interesting to me when I read that is I was in a room a year ago with DA Carson um, and he was talking about what is going to be the defining mark of this generation in the church. And he said, it's the internet and the smartphone. And in the same way that the printing press revolutionized the spread of the gospel because of the ability to quickly print and distribute both scripture, but also all kinds of theological books and tracts, that that's the same kind of moment we're living in now. And these articles are, or these authors are making the same point that the, the rise of the printing press both allowed a ton of misinformation, a ton of like anybody who wanted to publish a pamphlet could publish a pamphlet about whatever they wanted. And so you had this, you know, all of a sudden a sea of information where the control of information flowing through one or two authorities now got opened up. And the same thing is kind of happening now with uh, these three changes, with the rise of mass communication, science being pulled into the realm of public policy, and then the rise of the internet. Um, This has radically disrupted conventional modes of communication. And it's opened the door to all kinds of quote unquote fake news. But really the problem isn't fake news. The problem is the, the opening up of the, the, the democratizing of the information flow. Mm-hmm. So I have, I have a number of thoughts on this further. Um, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to let them go. And then Bob, you can either tell me to, to slow down or throw, go a different direction. But, but um, so reading this article and kind of thinking through this issue, I, 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 I think it is, it's provocative to sort of shift um, this away from fake news being a problem to just saying, hey, this is the reality of uh, the information age and when things get destabilized. And you just kind of have to learn to live in, in that tension. And I think, yeah, there's, there's truth to that. I think we, we, again, we would say, hey, what's worse? Like having all the information sort of centrally controlled and, you know, we, we're just only get, only uh, know what we're told or having this, you know, the door thrown wide open and having to, to sift through it all. And I think most people would probably err on the side of, I'd rather have access to information um, than not. But here, here I think actually, I, I'm going to put this forward and say, the, actually the problem isn't fake news. The problem is our ability to sort and, and the fact that we don't have shared values and sort of a shared worldview, for lack of a better term. Because even if you look at like the printing press and, and all the sort of disruptive nature that that caused and the, the you know, reformation and all that they get into, 
even, and I don't want to minimize the differences between Protestants and Catholics and some of the, you know, whatever, all the differences that existed at that time. But, but there was still a sense in which Europe was unified around certain shared assumptions, which allowed them to sort information, I think, in a more unified way, even if there was disagreement. Where now, because that's just like gone, the fact that it's been, the door has just been open to so much information, that's one thing. But the fact that we don't have these shared cultural values uh, and worldviews, it, it's like gas on the fire uh, in some ways. And so I think that, I would argue, is the bigger problem than, than fake news. Okay. And you might Do with be, that what you will. Well, you might be right there. Let me, let me circle back to that sort of circuitously through another route because I want to tie a bow on the article. The authors are saying, to go back to their introduction, hey, instead of the strategy being let's fact check everything and so that there's some authority somewhere telling you what's true news and what's false news, these authors are saying actually the strategy is we just need to embrace that we're going to live in a world with competing truths and an overabundance of truth claims, and that's the world we live in. And so we are going to have to sort of become adept at managing and discerning truth from falsehood or figure out who our new authorities are going to be, which is kind of similar to what you were drawing out there, Chris. I, I, so I guess what I'm saying is it's interesting to me that these authors are proposing a different solution than you hear from both the left and the right, right? Uh, the, yeah. the left is, hey, let's have a centralized source of information that, that controls what, what is misinformation. The right's approach is sort of like throw the doors wide open and let anybody say what they want, you know, freedom of speech. And these authors, I guess, are leaning a little more in that direction. But what they're saying is, actually, we don't have a choice. But we don't have a choice between those two things. The choice is embracing that we live in a world awash in information and figuring out what it, what are we going to do with that? How are we going to live mm -hmm. in that world? And and that's a different problem maybe than just asking the question, what is true? And these authors are writing, particularly in the realm of science. So what they want to see is the, the wars over scientific truth are going to intensify. To go back to something you said at the beginning, Chris, the promise of the Enlightenment was if we just, scienti if we just scientifically analyze everything, we're always going to arrive at some objective view of reality. And these authors are saying that was never, <laughs> science could never do that for us anyway. And so it's interesting for, to think from a Christian worldview because part of what we have to embrace is the false gospel that science can deliver us a, a firm and objective ground for knowledge. It's good to see that false gospel challenged. Um, it's, it's also chaotic to see that false gospel challenged because there's a way in which that has been the shared assumption of our culture is that we'll just, just trust the science to use a phrase we've heard a lot in the last few years. Um, but as Christians, perhaps it's perhaps it's interesting for us that we're finally seeing the sort of last bastion of enlightenment shared assumption in our society start to crumble, because I wonder if it opens up a really interesting opportunity for the gospel and for Christians to sort of say, yeah, there is no longer any shared consensus of what is, science does not answer the question, what is true? It never has answered that question for us. Am I tapping at the same thing you're asking, Chris, or am I going a different direction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it, it is. And because I think it also um, hits at the fact that 
while there, there are ways to practice science that, that really do seek to be objective, science is, I mean, the, the practitioners of science, the, the scientists themselves, are people who are ideological. Like they've been formed in certain beliefs. They have certain assumptions. They're, they're, and those things are going to often be imported into their interpretation of certain things. Um, I remember having a conversation when I was in grad school. I took an elective on biblical archaeology. Uh, and this was at the University of South Dakota. So, of course, it, you know, it wasn't a class that was affirming the Bible. It was all the ways that archaeology discredits the Bible. And I remember having this conversation with a professor who was actually pretty, a pretty generous guy. I knew I was a believer. And, and he asked me the question, don't you think that non, non-believing archaeologists are better at letting the chips fall where they may, while Christian archaeologists are always going to filter it through their beliefs? And, and I was like, no, I don't, <laughs> because everybody's ideological. And so I think what, what you're pointing out, Bob, is that whole enlightenment myth that science kind of offers us this objective, you know, nuggets of truth completely detached from meaning uh, is, is being blown up. And, and I think scientists are betraying that um, by showing themselves to be ideological, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's just, let's be honest about it. Let's just be, let's just like put our cards on the table and say, yeah, I'm, I'm using this science to promote a particular worldview. And I just want to be explicit about that rather than hiding behind the veil of, no, this is objective truth because it's science. Nothing ideological about this. Yeah. Chris, what you just said is, is really what this article has kind of highlighted for me. Like, because of, because of the amount of information, everybody is skeptical. So now everybody has an agenda. And the agenda used to be truth. Like, going, ba- going back a couple minutes ago to your Europe comment, we used to just want to get to we, we all agreed at least in our values to like, let's just get down to the baseline of truth. And now what this article highlights is, well, because of skepticism and because of, because of too much information and competing views, we all just have an agenda and that's what we're going to talk about. Well, I don't know that it's, so, so here's what I would say. I was thinking of a, a statement from Cornelius Van Til that was actually, it's actually one of the most helpful, I don't know what you'd call it, a talking point or a little nugget that has always helped me. Cornelius Van Til, of course, was doing apologetics. He was a reformed thinker in the mid 20th century. And what he used to always say is there are no brute facts. Yeah. And that's kind of what this article is saying, Dusty. There are no brute facts. There are only interpreted facts. Facts are always presented with some narrative around them. There are, human beings do not have access to just brute facts. There are only interpreted facts. And, so it's not just that everybody has an agenda. That's sort of a cynical way of saying it. It feels like to me is just to say like, well, everybody has an agenda. I would just say kind of what you just said, Chris, the way of saying it is everybody is already already living within a narrative and interpreting facts within a narrative. And so the question of is the correct interpretation of the facts, um, you know, COVID leaked from a lab in China or is the correct interpretation of the facts? That's a conspiracy theory. You shouldn't believe that. Well, that should be open to debate, perhaps, right? Like we should live in a society that, that gives us access, not, that doesn't try to say, here's the facts, just believe them. That's the enlightenment mythology is that we can, so we can trust some authority to just hand us the facts and our job is to believe the facts that we're given. Mm-hmm. That's the thinking behind propaganda and that's the thinking behind sort of an old 
enlightenment view of scientific communication. And that, that view was never true, but it's becoming more and more evident that it's not true. And so what a Christian, what a Christian worldview invites us to embrace is, Hey, we can, it's okay that we live in a world with a bunch of competing visions of how the facts should be interpreted. The Bible gives us a framework to make sense of that and to live within the world in a way that is discerning and wise. But it requires that we um, think harder, perhaps, or be more critical and more analytical of both the facts and the stories that we're being told, and that we embrace the fact that we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna always live in a world of competing stories, competing interpretations, people making different sense mm-hmm. of the facts, and rather than looking for who, what's the so to think about, you know, this is this is cliche now, but CNN and Fox News, right? Like, where do you? Which source do you trust to tell you what the facts mean? Is it CNN or is it Fox News? Well, if you're right-leaning, it's probably Fox News. And if you're left-leaning, it's probably CNN or MSNBC. But the idea is I want, I want someone to hand me the facts with the, ver- with the interpretation already pre-baked into it that I sort of already agree with. And mm-hmm. a Christian perspective on information is going to have to diversify my sources of data and information and then in a community of other people who are discerning, filter through that stuff and, and make sense of it. And it's, you know, this article is interesting to me because these writers from the perspective of science are saying, yeah, the day of there being a, <laughs> a unified voice for the scientific community, those days are over. Um, even when it comes to like scientific communication, that's not going to be the case. COVID, if anything, broke that wide open. And now you're going to have competing scientific interpretations of things, com- competing visions of what the science says or what following the science means. And that's probably a good thing these authors are suggesting, and I would agree, because I mm-hmm. think it'll, it, it forces us as Christians to become more discerning in the world we live in. And there's, there's, that's kind yeah. of scary in certain ways, but it's also a great invitation into a life of biblical wisdom. Yeah. And, and that's exactly, I think the, exactly the, the nugget here, the takeaway is the invitation into being discerning uh, because we, we, you can't, you know, the simple, uh, you know, we need censorship or we need to control X, Y, Z. One, that has its own set of problems, but I, it, it doesn't shape us in the kind, into the, the type of people that value, necessarily value discernment. It's, in some ways, it can just be lazy. I want my information handed to me already sort of prepackaged versus, no, I have to take it upon myself to actually uh, work through and sift through and discern. Uh, and, and, and that, if, again, there are challenges with that, of course, uh, because we, we all are prone to self-deception and, and can make errors, but, but there's also just tremendous opportunity for growth in maturity if we embrace it in the right way. Uh, and I think a big part of that is actually uh, curiosity. I mean, I think there, there's ways in which I think our, our battles over fake news, we've become people who are just so quick to make pronouncements and judgments on information rather than being curious and saying, huh, let me think about that. Let me tell me more about that. And, and, and someone might be flat wrong, and you may know that as they're explaining it, but at least just posturing yourself to be genuinely curious, because when you do that, you are going to open yourself up to um, having blind spots corrected and learning and growing and discerning. And so 
Um, I, and I think that's underneath some of what they're saying too is, hey, this is the world we're in. We need to learn to discern. Let's let's be curious about it uh, rather than so you know just rigid and and quick to be definitive. I think there's a strategy approach here too. If I think about it as a Christian and even as a church leader, what should our approach be? At the end of this article, they mentioned that in the in the in the aftermath of the printing press, Catholics and Protestants sort of took different approaches to this. Right, the Catholics opted for. Uh, let's have an index of forbidden books. Let's tell you what things to read. Let's sort of be the arbiter of truth for you and tell you, here's the books that are true. Here's the books that are banned. The Protestant print shops adopted a more liberal orientation that basically said, let's just print everything anybody wants to say and throw it all out there. (laughs) Some of it might be terrible, but it's better for people to have to sort through different points of view in order to arrive at truth. And so I think it's interesting for the church to think about in a world that's awash in all kinds of different information and points of view, is our approach going to be, let's tell people what to think, or is our approach going to be, let's teach people how to think, let's teach people how to become discerning, let's do the work of shaping wise human beings who can read and discern and filter through things and come to a, a nuanced understanding of the world we live in because they're good, curious learners, like you said, Chris. I think that's pretty challenging because I think in the main, I think that's a good call and a good, and a good charge. I think what's challenging about that is the mainstream is so immature in how they're communicating that the church probably has an outpost for maturity. If we can, going back to interpretation, if we can hang out in that interpretation space in community, in curiosity, Chris, to your point, then then we also probably have a missional opportunity to yeah. create maturity, yeah. to create discernment, to create, yeah. To, yeah. to foster wisdom. Yes. But I think that's a, I think that's a minority of people yeah, it's that a can challenge. be in that holding tank, that interpretation space. And so maybe that is a, a new charge, a new call to the church that the church can do. Let me land the plane on this podcast by reading a concluding statement from these authors. They write, those who lament the death of truth, should instead acknowledge the end of a monopoly system. Holding on to the idea that science always draws clear boundaries between the true and the false will continue to appeal strongly to many sincere and concerned people. But if we are now indeed experiencing a tumultuous transition to a new world of communication, what we may need is a different cultural orientation towards science and technology. That's what they say, and I would just say, as Christians, we should welcome a different cultural orientation towards science and technology. And though it's a little bit perilous to live in a world full of uh, half-truths and untruths, it's actually a really good thing for the gospel and for the church that science and technology, the authority of science and technology, is starting to be questioned because I think that uh, opens up an opportunity for the authority of Scripture and the authority of the, of the gospel to make some inroads. A goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. 
Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. Mm -hmm.